Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I'm actually going to start just for reading's sake in chapter 2, verse 17, to give us a little bit of context. You can leave the slide right there, Brent. This is the word of God. Here's what it says. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching this morning. Holy Father, sanctify us in the truth this morning, Father, as we confess your word is truth. Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate the scriptures this morning, that you would lead us into your truth so that we may glorify Jesus Christ. Father, by your Holy Spirit's power this morning, enable us, empower us to obey what you have rightly helped us to understand from the text. This morning, we pray for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, one of the expected, unexpected things I have noticed in preaching through the book of Galatians is how anxiety-inducing it is to preach it, at least for me. And I, I, was, I was thinking about this this week. Preaching is always a bit anxiety-inducing in a healthy way, nerve-wracking, because we as your pastors are standing up here in this pulpit with with the Word of God open and and pointing it to you as the very living Word of God. And by doing so, we are claiming to speak on God's behalf. That is enough to humble anyone, or at least it should be. It's enough to melt anyone into an anxious puddle of nerves on the floor But every Sunday we come into this pulpit, either literally or metaphorically, trembling with the fear of God, knowing our own inadequacies, even to pronounce the word inadequacy, (laughs) knowing our own sins, 
knowing our own struggles, our own failures, and yet standing up here to speak on behalf of God, knowing the weakness of our own flesh. And yet, in God's wisdom, this is how he has determined to spread his truth. This is how he has determined to save sinners and to edify his saints. He has chosen, he says in 1 Corinthians, the foolish things of this world and the weak things of this world to shame the wise. But the reason that Galatians, even more so than any other book that I've preached, has caused me more trouble is because of of the subject matter, because of what is going on in the church of Galatia. Now, of course, the whole Bible is the God-breathed, inerrant word of God. But preaching a book like Philippians or or a book like Thessalonians, these, these letters written to healthy churches, is entirely different than Galatians. Galatians is a letter to a church that is teetering on the brink of full-blown apostasy. Gospel-denying, spirit-denying, justification-denying apostasy. And so every verse in Galatians carries with it the, the solemnity, the gravity, and the seriousness of this reality. That is what I have found. And, and I say that to just, again, stress why Paul is speaking the way he does in Galatians and why he is taking the tone he does with the Galatians. The situation is serious. So by way of reminder, what is the situation in Galatians? What, where are we at in the letter? Well, we know that the Galatian church has been infiltrated with false teachers who are preaching a false gospel. This church, rather than refuting these teachers, rather than rejecting them and getting rid of them, instead has accepted this false gospel, this distorted gospel, as Paul calls it, another gospel. And Paul said in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 6, that by doing this, they are in danger of deserting the grace of of Christ. Why? Because of this false gospel. So what is this distorted or false gospel they have believed? Now this is critical to understanding Galatians because Paul spends the entire book refuting this false gospel. So we have to understand what he's arguing against so we can rightly apply it and interpret it to our own lives. The false gospel is this, that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, we're all agreed there, but here's where the the falsehood comes in. Here's where the distortion comes in. Faith in Jesus Christ plus obedience, plus obeying the Mosaic law, or Paul sometimes summarizes that by circumcision. Faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision. Faith in Jesus Christ plus outward obedience that is demonstrable. This false gospel taught that both of these things were necessary in order to enter into the kingdom of God, in order to be assured that a person is saved or justified before God. We need the righteousness of Christ, and we also need our own righteousness through obedience. We must supplement our faith with obedience in order to receive justification, in order to be declared righteous before God. We must earn God's 
righteousness by obeying the law. This is a false gospel, a gospel of works, a a Jesus plus gospel. Trusting in Christ, trusting in what Christ did for you, again, needs to be supplemented by what you can do for Christ. God's work plus your work equals justification, equals salvation. These false teachers were saying, this is how we know that someone is a part of the people of God. So Paul, extremely alarmed at this development, Paul, who planted the Galatian church, writes this letter to bring them back from the precipice of apostasy. Paul writes this letter to wake the Galatian church up to the danger they have put themselves into by accepting this false teaching. And this is why the language in Galatians is is so much more jarring, is so much more abrasive than it is in most of his other letters. Because the situation is critical. The situation is absolutely dangerous. They need to repent, and they need to repent now, lest the church be destroyed. And so here's what we have in chapter 3. You you might have noticed if you have the ESV that I stopped at verse 5 and didn't continue into verse 6, and there's a reason for that. So let me just give you a quick outline of of what's going on here in chapter 3. In verses 1 through 5, we'll see that this morning, Paul refutes the false teaching with an argument from what we'll call an argument from experience, an argument from their conversion. He's going to remind the Galatians and appeal to their experience of their conversion. In verses 6 through 14, Paul refutes this false teaching with an argument from the Old Testament. So now he goes back to Scripture, Scriptures of the Old Testament, and in the space of seven verses here, he quotes the Old Testament six times. And then in verses 15 all the way through chapter 411, Paul kind of zooms out and appeals to salvation history, redemptive history. He lays out the purpose of the law, the purpose of the new covenant, and how that changed things. So that's, that's what Paul's doing here. Now, last time we were in Galatians, we took a look at verse, chapter 2, verse 15 through 21. We saw that this is where Paul had begun his doctrinal assault on the false gospel the Galatians had, had bought into. And this morning, we will continue to witness and hear Paul dismantle this false gospel as he reminds the Galatian church of the true gospel of Christ. And here's how he does it this morning in this text with a a stinging barrage of questions that you just heard. Now, these questions are not Paul seeking information from the Galatians. These questions are entirely rhetorical. These these questions are, are questions that Paul is asking because he knows that the Galatians know the right answers to these questions, and he knows that by answering them, it will expose the inconsistency of what they are believing by accepting this false gospel. He's showing them, you can't receive and accept what I taught you and what these false teachers are teaching you. You have to choose one. And you might be tempted to think with a situation like this, specific questions of a specific church, how can these be relevant for us today? Well, what we'll see this morning is that these questions, each one of them, raise truths that are absolutely essential to understanding and believing the gospel. And we'll see that this morning. So look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul begins this section 
with a stinging rebuke. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You fools, he's saying. As we saw in our reading of the text earlier, Paul kind of breaks out of his doctrinal argument for a second to insult them, to rebuke them, to address them directly. There's pain and frustration in his words. How could you do this? It's like a father looking at his teenage child whom he just picked up from the police station. What were you thinking? That's what Paul's saying. What has gotten into you? This is not like you. You know better. That is the tone that Paul is taking here. And if it sounds a bit abrasive, that's because it is. Again, the Galatian church is walking into apostasy. They are being in the most serious sense of the word, foolish. Paul must wake them up to the seriousness of the danger they are in. Paul's bracing language does not throw his love for the Galatians into doubt, but rather it is an expression of his love for them and the situation they are in. Listen to some, how some have, have paraphrased this, this phrase. One author said, they paraphrased it this way, you stupid Galatians, who has hoodwinked you? One author paraphrases it this way, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, who has been casting a spell over you? Luther paraphrases it this way, he, he paraphrased. He says, I have brought you the true gospel, and you received it with eagerness and gratitude. Now, all of a sudden, you drop the gospel. What has gotten into you? You see these phrases here. Paul's language, you foolish Galatians, lets us know that the Galatians are not victims here, at least not entirely. Paul's language here demonstrates to us that they should have known better. They should have been able to see through and refute these false teachers when they came. In fact, judging by Paul's language elsewhere in the New Testament, I'm sure he warned them that they would come. But instead, they gave in and accepted them. They acted as fools. They acted foolishly. And because of their foolishness, their souls are in danger and their church is on the precipice of total abandonment of Christ. Brothers and sisters, doctrine matters. What we believe matters. Theology is important. That is the issue here in Galatia. Their wrong belief is about to put them on the road to hell. These false teachers and false gospels, there are certainly more today than there were back then. The church is not under less of an assault than it was back then. So let us be vigilant, lest we too be foolish like the Galatians. Paul then asks them this, who bewitched you? Or in other words, what he's saying literally is, who has cast a spell on you? In other words, Paul is essentially saying, you are acting so dumb, it's, it's, you're not even acting as yourself. What happened? Who tricked you? Who put a spell on you and is essentially controlling you? Snap out of it. And then look what he says. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the answer. This is what they have forgotten. This is what they have misunderstood as they've been led into error. That's what the statement in this place in Paul's argument tells us. This false gospel, in some way, and we'll look at this, is essentially a denial or a misunderstanding of the crucifixion 
of Christ. The Galatian church has been led into error because they've taken their eyes off the cross. Paul again is saying here, how could you fall for this false gospel of salvation by works? Don't you remember what I preached to you? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the crucified Messiah and all that that means. Don't you remember what I taught you about the cross? You see, the cross is the central battleground here in this doctrinal disagreement. We'll see that time and time again in Galatians. Paul's central point in chapter 2 had to do with the cross. And the entire rest of, the, uh, the entire rest of chapter 3 is an explanation of the cross. But why? Were the Galatians denying that Jesus was crucified? No. Were they denying that Jesus was the Christ? No. Were they denying that the cross atoned for their sins? No. But they were failing to understand the full and true nature of what the cross accomplished. They had taken their eyes off of, or they've forgotten the true and full glory of the crucifixion. Remember what this false gospel was they accepted. Faith in Jesus plus circumcision. Faith in Jesus plus obedience to the law for salvation. How is that a functional denial or repudiation of the cross, as Paul calls it later in Galatians? How is, how is letting works into salvation a denial of the cross? Because the crucifixion is the central moment in redemptive history. It is the moment in history when the old covenant is terminated and fulfilled in Christ and the new covenant is, is inaugurated by his blood. The old passed away because the new had come. Christ accomplished salvation on the cross in full. His cry on the cross was not, it is begun, now you do the rest. His cry was, it is finished. Christ on the cross did not make salvation possible by his death. He accomplished the salvation of his people, of all who would believe in his name. It is that truth that this false gospel had distorted. By believing in a false gospel of faith in Jesus plus anything else, but especially works plus obedience, they were undermining and repudiating the very work that Christ had accomplished on the cross. Christ on the cross, and this is what Paul had preached them, had accomplished their salvation, and they were saying, that's nice, now we have to do our part. No, no. See, they, they still believed in the crucifixion, but they had stopped believing in its sufficiency. They are trying to add their effort and their accomplishments to the accomplishment of Christ, and I assure you, he needs none of your effort. Hear me this morning, brothers and sisters. Jesus' death on the cross, on our behalf, was sufficient and it was effective to accomplish our salvation. He neither needs you to add anything to it, nor can you add anything to it. On the cross, he accomplished once and for all the salvation of his people. By his own death and with his own blood, he purchased a people for himself. He fulfilled the entire Mosaic law. He fulfilled the covenant that God made with humanity in the Garden of Eden, the very covenant that Adam had failed to obey. Christ accomplished it. 
He accomplished it all. So how do you enter into this people? How do you enter into this new covenant that Christ has opened? Not by circumcision, not by obedience, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That is what is at stake here in Galatians, or at least one of the main things. Faith in Christ is the instrument by which we now enter into the new covenant. Believing, trusting, resting in Christ's work, not our own. And even that, we'll see in a few verses, is a gift of God by his grace. So brothers and sisters, be reminded of the gospel this morning. And let it be a balm to your weary soul this morning. Rest in the cross of Christ this morning by faith. Rest and trust in Christ's work, not your own. Rejoice. Rejoice in your weakness. Rejoice in your weakness and in the greatness of the Savior. You cannot, you must not add anything to Christ's work. You must simply believe on him by faith, brothers and sisters. Trust in Christ, for only he can save. This this false gospel of salvation by faith and obedience is inconsistent with the truth of Christ. Believing that any type of works or obedience or outward acts are necessary for salvation is not only a distortion of the true gospel, it's a denial of the true gospel. It is looking at the things that Jesus has claimed to accomplish and saying, no, but I have to do more. That is not enough. You have not done enough. That's blasphemous. And so this is the first reason Paul gives us for the Galatians' foolishness. They had, they've denied the work of Christ. They've misunderstood. They've distorted the work of Christ. The second reason Paul gives us for calling what the Galatians are doing foolish, the reason it's leading them into apostasy, is that they've denied, by this, accepting this false gospel, they've also denied the work of the Holy Spirit. The rest of the questions we'll look at this morning focus on this point. Now, this is interesting because up until this point, it seems like all we're talking about is justification. That's kind of been what's justified by works, justified, justified, justification, justified, the righteousness of Christ. And yet, Paul here all of a sudden turns to speak of the Spirit's work and of sanctification, how we live the Christian life. See, these two things are inseparably linked, and we'll see that as we continue. Look at verse 2. Paul narrows in on them. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What he's saying by saying, let me ask you only this is, if you answer this question correctly, you'll stop believing in this false gospel. And he knows they know the answer. Did you receive the Spirit's Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, again, he's, what he's doing here is brilliant. He's exposing their own theological inconsistency. Each one of these questions is a kill shot to the false gospel. Paul's asking him here, hey, Galatians, Think back to your conversion, okay? You remember that? Think back to that moment when I was preaching the gospel, you received the Holy Spirit, and you believed. How did that happen? Did that happen by works of the law? Did that happen because you decided to get circumcised? 
Did that happen by your obedience, by doing what the law commands? Or did that happen by faith? The answer, which the Galatians knew, is by hearing with faith, by, by believing the message that he preached. That's how they had received the Spirit. That's how they had entered in to the kingdom of God. That's how they had become Christians. They had received the Spirit by faith, not by works, not by obedience, but by faith. And the implication of Paul's logic here is inescapable. He's got him trapped. If you received the very Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, by faith and not works, how are you now believing a gospel that says a person needs to be circumcised and keep the entire Mosaic law in order to belong to the people of God? You've already received the Holy Spirit. Now you have to do something else. So not only are they adding to Christ's work by this false gospel, they're adding to the work of the Holy Spirit. They're just ruining everything. Paul's saying, you dummies, this false gospel directly denies the very experience you had. Don't you remember what happened? Paul had preached. The Galatians had believed and they had received the Spirit. No works necessary. No works needed. This is how salvation works. Paul's reminding them of this reminding them of their own conversion, reminding them of their own experience and exposing their foolishness and inconsistency. So let me remind you and myself as well, when you placed your trust in Christ as Savior, when you heard the gospel, you too received the gift of the Holy Spirit, not by works, not by works, by faith. The reception of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant is the mark of someone who's in the new covenant, not circumcision. And this might lead us to ask the question, but wait, I thought it was faith that brought us into the new covenant. I thought it was faith, by faith we were connected with salvation, not by receiving the spirit, faith in Jesus, right? So, so which is it, faith in Jesus or receiving the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes, yes. These are two sides of the same coin in the New Testament. These are two ways of talking about the exact same experience, the exact same thing. This is what it means to be converted and to believe in Christ. There is no such thing as a Christian who has not received the Holy Spirit, and there is no one who has the Holy Spirit in them who does not believe that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. In fact, it gets deeper. If your faith is in Christ, it is because the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It is because God, by the power of his spirit, has made you alive and brought you into his people. And so two things I want to just kind of observe here as we're thinking about this, the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. Number one, salvation is entirely Trinitarian. The Father sent the Son, the Son accomplished salvation, and the Father, through the Son, sends the Spirit to apply salvation to his people. The gospel is Trinitarian, which is why to knowingly deny the Trinity is to deny the gospel. The gospel is the revelation of the triunity of God. So salvation is entirely Trinitarian. Number two, salvation is a sovereign work of the triune God. Salvation is something that God does. It is not something that you do. It is not something that you chose or choose. It is something that God did to you. He saved you. He saved me. 
Or another way of saving, saying this is salvation is by grace, grace alone. You can see how critical this is to the Galatians' misunderstanding of the gospel. As soon as you start to move back from that truth that salvation is entirely a work of God, all of a sudden you start to add in your own works. See, the Galatians, we have a hint of this idea in this verse. The Galatians had received the Holy Spirit by faith. Now, again, on the face of it, that sounds like something they did. It sounds like a work they did. They received the Spirit. But that's not what it means. It means that the Holy Spirit had come to the Galatians in the preaching of the gospel and that they had responded in faith. Why did they respond in faith? Why did they respond in hearing with faith or by trusting in the message that they heard? Because they were smart? No. Because they were so holy and religious? No. Because Paul was a really persuasive preacher? No. They responded in faith when they heard the gospel because God poured out his Holy Spirit upon them. This is hinted at in our text, but it's made absolutely clear in other texts. Listen to how the Apostle Peter tells the story of the salvation of the Gentiles to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And as I read this, as you hear it, listen to who is the actor in these things and who is receiving the action, okay? This is, this is what it says in Acts chapter 15. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, the, the matter of justification in the Gentiles. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. Okay, God is acting. God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God's choice, what was it? That the Gentiles should hear the gospel and believe. So God did not just choose that the gospel should be preached to them. He chose that they would believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them How? By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. The only person acting in this verse is God. God said, I want the Gentiles to hear the gospel, I want the Gentiles to believe the gospel, so I'm going to bear witness to them, I'm going to give them the Spirit, and I'm going to cleanse their hearts by faith. They received that because of God's work. Another way you could put this, James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that is, the gospel. Titus makes this equally clear. Paul says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, there's that word, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But we decided that we'd had enough and so we tried to clean our life up. No. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Where are we in that verse? What are we doing? Uh, Disobeying, being led astray, slaves to our sins, passing our days in malice. God acted and we were saved. Ephesians says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast by grace through faith. And just as a side note, those prepositions are very important. We're not saved by our faith in Christ. We're saved by the grace of God. Faith is simply the means by which God expresses and attaches us to his grace. We say we're saved by faith. It almost sounds like a work that we do. No, we're saved by grace through faith. So why do I spend all the time, my time on this? Because I want you to see the amazing grace of God, brothers and sisters. I want to reinforce to you that you did not earn your salvation. God did not save you because of anything you've done or anything that you are. God poured out his Holy Spirit upon you when you were his enemy. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wanted to save you. We were his enemies. Dead in trespasses. Dead in our sins. Rightfully and justly on the road to hell in rebellion against him. And yet he loved us. And he demonstrated his love for us by sending his only son to purchase us with his own blood. And to be raised to life so that we too might be raised to life. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he created the church and began to spread this message throughout the world. And for thousands of years and maybe thousands more, the Holy Spirit has been and will continue to sovereignly work through the preaching of the gospel to seek and save those who are lost. We've merely received the grace of God, brothers and sisters. We cannot, we should not, we must not add anything to that. God did not save us because we believed in Jesus Christ. We have believed in Jesus Christ because God has saved us. And he did this by pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us and we received him by believing the message of the gospel which was preached to us. That is the God that we worship, brothers and sisters. That is the God who saved us and because of that, that is the God who will never abandon us. That is the God who has become our father through adoption and has sent his spirit into our hearts. And this is the God who is still saving sinners. So trust him, brothers and sisters. Trust him. Trust him with everything that you have and all that you are. And worship him. For truly he deserves all honor, all glory, and all praise. Let us not be foolish like the Galatians and think that we can add anything to the work of Christ or add anything to the work of of the Spirit. So Paul reminds the Galatians, remember how you received the Spirit by hearing with faith, not by works of the law. And now he continues. He continues by reminding them how they are to live their Christian lives. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Surely, one author paraphrases again, surely you can't be so idiotic as to think that a man begins his spiritual life in the spirit and then completes it by reverting to outward observance. You can hear Paul's tone again here. Are you serious? Is this really what you believe? You really think that the Holy Spirit had to miraculously work on you to save you and that now You're going to leave the spirit behind and pursue sanctification, pursue perfection, pursue the Christian life, the strength of your own flesh? 
What's the matter with you? We all need to hear this this morning, brothers and sisters. Your pursuit, my pursuit of, of perfection, some translations say completion, or in other words, what it's really saying, your sanctification, your growth in godliness, your growth in maturity in the Christian life, you're putting to death the sins in your life. That pursuit is not accomplished in the power of your own flesh. Sanctification is lived out and accomplished in the exact same way as our justification, by faith alone, through the power of God alone. Biblical scholar and fellow Southern Baptist Tom Schreiner says of this verse, for this reason, he says that this verse, verse 3, is one of the most important verses for the Christian life. Why? Because we're, we're pretty good at understanding that salvation comes to us by the grace of God. We're pretty good at that. But like the Galatians, it's much easier for us, I think, to live and act now as if obedience to God growing in our faith comes by the sheer force of our will, comes by the power of our own flesh, by the sweat of our brow, by our own grit and determination. We act as if God has saved us and then put the ball in our court. Nothing could be further from the truth, church. Trying to obey God and live according to his commands in the power of the flesh, in other words, by our own determination, by our own effort, it's not only futile and useless, it's actually sinful and offensive to God and foolish. It, it, because it's, it's a rejection of God's empowering grace. It's a quenching of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. It's God has given us the Holy Spirit to enact these things in our lives, and we're saying, no, I don't need that. I'll do this on my own. I got this. So foolish. It's so foolish. So many times, my sweet young children will, will be attempting to do something, and I'll say, let me, I can see them not doing it, right? Let me help you. No, I know how to do this. No, you don't. <laughs> and you can't. It's like that times a bajillion in the, our sanctification. We feel, and I think sometimes it's just because of the way we're raised, it's because we're as Americans, we're so independent, it's, we feel like it would be more impressive and more glorifying to God if we could just do this on our own and not need his help. That is blasphemous. That's not how the gospel works. That's not how sanctification works. That's not how any of this works. And here's the truth. It's not just that it won't work, as I said earlier. It's actually that if you follow that path and you, you believe that, even subtly, and it creeps in, that you can obey God in the power of your own flesh by your own strength, that will destroy your Christian life. Because you can't do it. The flesh, Romans 8 says, cannot submit to God. Nothing will cause you to resent God more than trying to obey him in the power of your flesh. Nothing will cause you to resent the Bible more than trying to live in obedience in the power of your own flesh. Nothing will cause you to resent the church and those around you more than trying to love them and obey God's word in the power of your own flesh. Romans 8 says that to set the mind on the flesh, to try to do these things in the flesh brings death, but to try to do them in the power of the spirit brings life. In Galatians 5, Paul gets into this. He says, essentially, there's, there's two ways to do this. 
flesh or spirit, you have to choose. You can't have both. Listen to what he says. This is, this is the fruit of following the flesh. And so if you've seen some of these things crop up in your life, you're probably relying on the flesh in some form or fashion, in some measure. Fruits of the flesh, sexual immorality, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and he goes on. But the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, marks of a life reliant on the Spirit versus marks of a life that is trying to assert itself by obedience in the flesh. Both people are trying to obey God. That's the thing. And these are where those roads lead. So what's the solution? How can we prevent ourselves from being tempted to rely on the flesh, being tempted to obey God and please God by relying on the flesh? Paul already gave us the answer. The cross of Christ. It's the cross of Christ. Remember, this is what the Galatians had forgotten and minimized. It's the cross. How does the cross help us live by faith? How does the cross help us live by the Holy Spirit and not by the flesh? Because understanding the cross... It exposes the true depth of our sin and of our helplessness. And the cross puts on display God's love and saving action for sinners like you and me. On the cross, God's saving power was publicly proclaimed. We were utterly dead in our sin, yet he saved us through the death and resurrection of his son. And it was on the cross that he vanquished the power of of the flesh. Christ died on the cross to kill us in the flesh so that we might be raised to life in the spirit. So to revert to the flesh, again, is not just foolish. Foolish, it's offensive. On the cross, he purchased not just our justification, not just the beginning of our Christian life, but also our sanctification and glorification. It's a done deal. Salvation has been accomplished once for all. That is the power of the sacrifice of Christ. And you might say, okay, I get it. I know that I'm justified. I know that I have the righteousness of Christ. I believe, but I still struggle with sins. So if salvation's accomplished, why does that happen? Well, guess what? You're not the only one who knows that. God knows that too. That's why he has sent his Holy Spirit to you. This is Paul's point. This is why he sent his Holy Spirit into you, to sanctify you. So you must now rely and depend fully on the Holy Spirit to complete the Christian life, to pursue the Christian life, to grow in the Christian life. For any good thing, you must rely and depend on the Holy Spirit, acknowledging your own inability, acknowledging your own weakness, which is why we don't like it. That's how, that's what a life of faith looks like. John Piper helpful, writes this helpful diagnosis for us on this passage. And, and as I read this, be thinking about this. He says this, The essential mark of a Christian is not how far you have progressed in sanctification, but on what you are relying to get there. Are you striving for sanctification by works or are you striving for sanctification by faith? 
Are you advancing in the life of love by the power of the Spirit, or are you trying to love in the power of the flesh? That is, by your own works. Brothers and sisters, we, we forsook the flesh when we placed our faith in Christ. But that flesh is always trying to creep back in. It's our nature. We're always tempted to think that God expects us to do the Christian life in our own strength. So let this text be a reminder to you, brothers and sisters. That is why God has given us the Holy Spirit, to accomplish in us his purposes. So again, weary saint, be relieved this morning of your efforts to try to earn God's favor, to earn God's salvation, to earn righteousness. In Christ, you have it all. In Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. And not only that, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance that you will inherit when Christ comes again. So be restful in Christ. His grace is sufficient for you. God knows your weakness. God knows your sins. He's taken care of them, and he is taking care of them. So repent. Join me in in repenting of trusting in our own flesh, and let us together run to the throne of grace where we will find mercy and help in our time of need. Place your hope for growth entirely in God and on his power. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Well, Paul continues, did you suffer so many things in vain? And if indeed it was in vain, another stark warning. The Galatian church, though relatively new, had already suffered for the name of Christ in some form or fashion. Paul here reminds them of the gravity of their situation. He's kind of saying without saying, you continue down this road. All of your suffering was pointless because you're abandoning Christ. So all the things you suffered in his name, in vain. Paul's time would have been with him in vain. Their persecution that they endured would have been in vain. Again, this verse is a reminder to us of the seriousness of trusting in a false gospel. Salvation is at stake. Salvation in Christ is for those who persevere to the end by God's grace, brothers and sisters. So as you go through the course of life, as people protect you and warn you and guard you and encourage you in the faith, know that that is God, by his grace, keeping you on the path of obedience. This endurance, this perseverance, like everything else in the Christian life, is not something done in the flesh, but something done in the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God. And so Paul asks one last question, which, again, simply reinforces his earlier points. Salvation, sanctification, all of it, all the Christian life is all of grace. It's all done by the power of the Holy Spirit. He asks in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Same question as before, phrased slightly differently. Galatians, why is God working so powerfully through his Spirit to you? Is it because of your great works and obedience, or is it because of your faith and your reliance on him? And again, the answer is obvious. They know the answer. He's showing their inconsistencies. And by these questions, he's he's exposing to them, exposing them to the grace of God and their failure to believe in it. It's entirely reliant on the work of the Holy Spirit from conversion to justification sanctification, 
and all the way till we die and are resurrected and glorified. All of that is a work of God, a gift of God that we receive and live in by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All of this empowered by the very Holy Spirit himself. Believe it. Believe it. Rest in the work of Christ. So if you're here this morning and your faith is not in Christ, you are, according to the book of Romans, living with your mindset on the flesh. That leads only one place, friend, to death. So I would urge you this morning, you have heard You've heard the gospel. You've heard what Christ accomplished on the cross. You've heard the greatness and goodness and kindness and love of God put on display. Would you place your faith in him this morning? If you're here this morning, God is seeking you. Do not harden your heart to his voice. There's no hope of forgiveness outside of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is no other Savior. Only placing your faith in Him will give you eternal life. Only in Him will you find the righteousness that you need. Only in Him will you find justification. Only in Him will you find sanctification and glorification. Only by faith in Him will you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So believe on Him this morning, friend. You cannot please God in your own flesh. It's impossible. Even your best efforts to be a good person damn you to hell outside of Christ. The Bible is so clear on this. The only way to please God is by faith in Christ. Anything done outside of faith is sin. Without faith, all of your efforts, all of your best efforts to be good and to do good Simply pile more and more judgment on your head as you continue to reject the work of Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth and the life, the only way to the Father. He is full of mercy. He is full of love. He is full of goodness. And he himself has proclaimed that he will not cast out anyone who comes to him in faith. So this morning, I urge you to trust him And join us, this group of sinners who have found Christ to be a fully satisfying Savior, a good and merciful God. And to those whose faith is in Christ, my brothers and sisters, let us take heed lest we fall. Let us constantly confess as a church that in ourselves, by our own efforts and strivings, we can accomplish nothing Let us pray that God would reveal to us any amount of our flesh that we may be relying on. Let us together glory in the cross of Christ. Let us together glory in our weakness. Let us together glory in the mercy of God on display in the cross of Christ so that we, so that Christ might be exalted among us. And let us remind each other constantly of the goodness and mercy of God as we daily remind each other of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us keep our eyes on Christ and him crucified. Amen. Let's pray.